Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Welcome, Intimates. The first thing I'd like to offer you is a content warning that we will be talking about white supremacy, specifically how Robin grew up with a father who was involved with the KKK. I'll also mention um, a little bit about the white supremacy that I dealt with in Ladner, which wasn't super bad, but wasn't great. Um, and we will eventually get to trigger plans, because trigger plans are important. If you haven't thought about it already, it's worth thinking about what you want to do for self-care in and around your own mental health and listening to this. Is this something you're listening to just because it fascinates you? How are you going to handle it if you find yourself upset by the episode? Those sorts of questions. This episode's going to not just be about white supremacy, but also about things like poverty and mental illness and how trauma intersects with white supremacy and what healing has looked like for Robin and to some extent myself. I also want to talk about what shame surrounding being even peripherally involved with a white supremacist might look like. I also talk a little bit about India's fascination with Mein Kampf. I just wanted to flag a neat and controversial area of research for you as part of my due diligence and fact-checking, which is there is an Indo-Aryan migration that supposedly happened of Aryan folks into India, which may or may not have led to the Indo-Aryan synthesis. It is complicated to talk about because there are a lot of really intense people um, surrounding a whole bunch of controversy, some yelling stuff that makes absolutely no sense to me, like Aryans are indigenous to India and, and, <laughs> and all kinds of other stuff. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of controversial research you can do um, or research you can do into controversial things around Aryan origins for folks in India and... Nazis in India, which is a thing, um, Hindu Nazis in India, sort of, which is really confusing to me, and yeah, Mein Kampf made it to the bestseller list in India. That's basically all you need to know. I've included some links. If you want to do any research, you're welcome to do so. It is a rabbit hole. You could spend a lot of time researching it, but I do mention that there is a fascination with Mein Kampf and Nazism in a group of people in India. So I figured I would do some due diligence and fact check it, and it turned into this enormous rabbit hole of all kinds of people who have done so much research on f like what I would consider essentially fringe hypotheses, but it seems like they're interesting enough for some folks to research. And if you're one of those folks, I've included some links to get you started. Otherwise, please enjoy this episode primarily about white supremacy, poverty, mental wellness, trauma, healing, shame. So yeah, this is some pretty intense content. <laughs> Just a little bit. So I wanted to say thank you 
for coming on the show and being willing to talk about this. Like you said, I think it's it's really important stuff to talk about. And I recognize that it's very difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. So if you feel uncomfortable at any point or you want to take a break, it won't really affect the episode. I'm really happy to just like pause or stop recording. We can like get some tea. <laughs> Speaking of which, have I gotten you tea or are you good? No, I actually have some. Okay, in awesome. My mug. I'm prepared. Yeah. So thank you for offering. And thank you um, for saying that. Um, as I mentioned to you uh, earlier, this is my first time speaking openly about some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, other than really close loved ones and, you know, a few therapists. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so this is my first time speaking openly about it and I am really nervous, but it, I know it's important mm-hmm. and that's why I'm doing it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's and and just so we're clear i know that these aren't like you're talking about things values you don't espouse yes yeah and so that the audience is clear we're friends we're both educators we've known each other Mm -hmm. a long time and i have no reservations about you whatsoever um and and i am aware that i think both of us have been exposed to white supremacy in really different ways yeah yeah. Um, like I didn't grow up with it in my family, but I did grow up with a lot of racism in my family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that racism came through Britain and both on my Indian side, the exposure to a lot of Indian ideas and also a lot of British ideas. And then on my British side, exposure to a lot of British ideas. And I think a lot of that is is complicated. Like a lot of the, these things are really complicated to talk about. I think... In in some cases, there isn't necessarily even the intention to be harmful. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, there is. Yeah. But that intention doesn't change the impact mm-hmm. yeah. that racism can have. Absolutely. Um, and I think it is important to mention, like, as a, uh, a Canadian, as somebody who, like, my nationality um, is Canadian. And as a presenter, I go to the States a lot mm-hmm. and there are a lot of americans that assume there's no racism in canada right <laughs> and then there's even canadians that will either think well there's no real racism in canada or they'll kind of just point to the states and say like mm-hmm. well the states is way worse right and i'm like well you're just minimizing the issues that are here in canada and yes white supremacy exists in canada mm-hmm. yes you can be a member of the kkk in canada mm-hmm. um i mean Officially, you actually have to register through the states, but they exist here. Racism exists here. Yes, police brutality exists here. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, in a lot of cases, it is worse in the states, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't address it mm-hmm. here. Absolutely. And um, to some of the loved ones that I've talked to about my uh, experiences and upbringing with white supremacy. Some of them have have reacted with a bit of disbelief, like, but this is Canada, you know, we don't have we don't have that here. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I I grew up with quite a bit of it. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to explain to people. Yeah. I think especially in Vancouver, there's this bubble, like there's this distance where people Mm -hmm. just don't believe like 100 kilometers out of Vancouver. The world just drops off there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important to to mention as a side note as a mixed race person like the effects of internalized racism mm. and how interestingly 
even just growing up around white supremacy ideas that I disagreed with doesn't mean I didn't internalize some of those ideas when I was younger. Um, and I mean, to this day, I'm still working on being really vigilant. And I, I think for the most part, I've dealt with like the, the bear share of it. Mm -hmm. But I'm always a little wary that like some of those ideas might still be alive in me. Wow. It affects it affects you really differently. It's like if if I prioritize white skin as being fundamentally more beautiful or more attractive in myself, that means it now deeply negatively impacts my self image. Right. It impacts partners that I have. It impacts friends. It can impact anyone, right? Yeah. It's it's just as alive in me in a way. Mm -hmm. um, however, it's it's also important to mention how different that is from being like a white person who has like white supremacy alive in them. Yeah, just because um, it doesn't tend to impact you like internally probably in the same way although you have talked about like a lot of shame and and such around it which is yeah um i thank you for sharing that with me because i don't know what it is like to be sure. somebody that isn't white or like really white passing i'm i'm pretty white mm -hmm. um you know dark blonde hair green eyes super white skin i I burn in the sun really easily, you know, like I'm, I'm very white. So I don't understand what it is like, obviously to yeah. not be white. Um, and yeah, it's, it, I was actually thinking about this on the way here, um, about some of the things I had to learn on my own. Um, and this is a case of actually a lot less of the malicious, like intended, kind of racism um at family dinners certain jokes were told uh mm -hmm. really racist jokes and i remember i was i think i was about eight years old and my aunt was bringing over her boyfriend to like introduce the family to a family dinner mm -hmm. and trying to be charming and funny i told this joke and i it, see yeah it was a, a joke at the expense of indigenous people and my aunt's boyfriend was indigenous right and so i told this joke and the entire table was silent and awkward and i was kind of like why isn't anybody laughing at this joke and you know someone kind of leans in and was like um you know um this person i'll say his name um yeah is indigenous and and this joke isn't really very nice to indigenous people so uh we shouldn't tell that and i'm like you guys tell this joke all the time Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, but it's not appropriate when there's somebody around that's indigenous, you know, and it was, yeah. it was a really confusing kind of moment for me as a kid and being like, well, if we're telling this joke, just when someone isn't around, that shouldn't be the case. If we can't tell it in front of that person, we shouldn't be allowed to tell that joke ever. Right. And I think that was around the age I started really thinking about that kind of thing mm -hmm. because it hadn't occurred to me of course being raised that that wasn't uh it was a joke that was told all the time there wasn't anything wrong with it until someone was in the room and i was like that doesn't seem right right um so that was when i i think around the age i really started to kind of question like okay what am i saying that's inappropriate i didn't realize some of these things are insulting right maybe i shouldn't say it at all just to be safe right like what could i be saying that might be really hurtful to yeah people? yeah and and yeah. not having any clue that this those kinds of jokes could have been hurtful mm -hmm. absolutely yeah I also want to mention as a side note that like ranting and being off topic is like pretty normal for us mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and rest can be really good when you're talking about really difficult things. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I meant to ask you before we yeah. started what your trigger plan was for oh. today, because I only just looked at the question sheet because I figured <laughs> we would just like spitball for a bit, yeah. being our usual selves. Because um, that's an important thing to talk know, about right? before you start. Right. Um, well, first of all, I'm just really glad you have a spinny chair because I'm like really fidgeting and stuff with it. Uh, being nervous and trying to push through this really uncomfortable topic. Mm -hmm. um, if I do a trigger, I honestly, I'll probably, I can say, I can say, you know what, I need a break and I would probably just need to walk out of the room and catch some air. Mm -hmm. Would uh, you like company when that happens or would you like to be alone? Or do thank you, think... you for asking. I would probably just want a minute alone. Okay. And then I can come back and whenever sure. I'm ready or say that I'm not ready to continue but yeah. i would like to i would like to do this cool and i can always get you like some food or <laughs> yeah for me because for me i think that's what i would like if i start getting like really upset or like i'm starting to connect with a lot of memories from my childhood that are like landing in a really like white supremacy way for me yes what is your plan if, if something is not right it would it would also be to stop and i would probably get myself some green tea okay would yeah. you like company or would you want a moment alone i'm good with company okay yeah, I feel safe with you, and I feel like you'd be a good person to recuperate with. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Feelings. Feelings. Um, you'd also mentioned the Calm Harm app to me. Oh, yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about that for a minute. Sure. Um, I'm sure there are others out there. Um, this is the one I'm aware of and that I use. It's called uh, Calm Harm, two words. And it's actually intended for people that self-harm. I, I don't self-harm, but I do have uh, destructive thoughts and I have panic attacks. And I actually find that this app works really well for panic attacks. Um, and I'm sure there are other apps specifically for panic attacks, but this is the one I have. And you kind of just open it when I'm having trouble and it will ask you know, what do you need? Do you need a distraction? Do you need to breathe and have breathing exercises? Do you need, like, what do you need? Um, and so you just kind of click on it and it will help you with that activity distraction. I usually use the breathing exercises because it has visuals and it's really great. And then after I think 60 seconds, it asks, has the urge passed? And you can say no or yes, and, and it'll keep helping you if you haven't. And then when it's done, um, it'll ask you, you know, what was happening in this moment, how bad was the urge, and it kind of helps you kind of journal and keep track of any of those issues. So I, I do, I recommend it to other people. I think it's great. Um, or even to look for other ones. I'm sure there are other ones, but that's mm -hmm. the one I know of. Yeah, I know there's there's SAM, which is, mm. I forget what, but that one, that one one of my partners uses for anxiety. Nice. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly, I downloaded it. I used it for a little bit and I was in a really like high place then, by mm. which I mean a not low place as opposed to an inebriated or intoxicated <laughs> place. Although being a really high place can be yeah, in sure. intoxicating. <laughs> yeah. Speaking it's, as a bipolar person. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes my highs are quite high. Quite intoxicating. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me now that you've said it, but yeah. because I'm not a person with bipolar, that's not right. something that would have occurred to me. It's just... Uh, at least as far as I know. Yeah. Being in like that really high manic spot, sometimes you don't make the best decisions. And it's good to be aware of that. Anyways. I think I've probably more just struggled with depression my whole life. Mm -hmm. 
So when I'm not depressed, I'm like, what is this place? <laughs> but I've, it's been more and more days, like yeah. more and more days have been not depressed. So that's wonderful. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing for my, for me about depression and my experience of depression and, and intimates listening may have heard this many times, but mm -hmm. I tend to conceptualize depression as hopelessness rather than sadness. Yeah, that is, I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. I don't ha actually have depressive episodes very often. I'm almost always in a manic state. <laughs> seriously but um every now and then a, a depressive episode will hit me hard and it is it's mostly just the hopelessness yeah it's like when i didn't have any career options and i was thinking about my future mm. it it's leaden like it's so hard to get out of bed and it's it's right, so yeah. hard to want to do anything because it's just so hard to envision the future as anything other than this overwhelming um just in ominous cloud of not just uncertainty but almost certainty that things will go very badly mm. so that that's yeah. sort of been how i've contextualized it so as i've started to work on finding work that isn't in an abusive environment i have yeah. a wonderful employer right now i'm very happy with um, which is not something i've said often in my life and actually they're helping me look more into web development freelancing which oh, is super awesome that's so like up super your alley supportive. for sure and just like super supportive yeah that's good yeah in fact they actually um dropped a couple hundred bucks my way as seed money to start this podcast because they wow. listen to a lot of podcasts and they were like yeah if you need some help like getting some you know like initial setup like here i'll just give you this as like a <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that's so awesome that's awesome yeah that's really great i'm happy for you thank you yeah, I mean, prior to that, it was getting yelled at for things that weren't my fault from someone who, like, punched walls and occasionally right. threw things across the room. And I was like, wow. this is really abusive. No kidding. But when you have a history of abuse, you're like, oh, but I can cope with this. Mm. I can cope with this in a way other people yes. can't. And, like, I was making decent money, which is so relative. Mm. It's funny how the second you're making even close to what you're making in an abusive relationship and a non-abusive one, you're like, I can't believe I put up with that shit. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm in a better place than I've been before. Is That's the wonderful. <laughs> That's fantastic. Cool. Do you ever find, just getting back on mm -hmm. the ominous, difficult topic of white supremacy. <laughs> swear we're not avoiding it. Right? Um, do you ever use inappropriate jokes to cope with the awkwardness or anxiety oh. surrounding trauma? Yes. All the time and I'm actually trying to be more aware of it especially as a public speaker yeah. and those that are really close to me I mean a lot of them have that kind of same defense mechanism um, or they just are really understanding uh, but I, I, I just try to be aware of the right time in the right place you know I don't want to make jokes about my trauma in front of my kids mm -hmm. or yeah, when I'm public speaking because I, I don't want to rub anyone the wrong way I don't want to offend anyone or make it seem like I'm making light of it. Mm -hmm. It's just a coping mechanism, mm -hmm. uh, especially with um, a trauma yeah, in my past childhood. You know, um, I, yeah, I've made jokes. I was eating something the other day that made me think that was something I ate a lot as a kid. And I was like, wow, this tastes like bad childhood, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but maybe not, uh, maybe not appropriate around children, but at the same time, hilarious to other people. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's, that's the kind of the joke I'll, I'll, I'll mm -hmm. make. Mm -hmm. And was your partner around to enjoy that? I think friends, friends were around ah, and, okay. and most of them were like, yeah, we can relate. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But I can also see why that's something that you wouldn't necessarily want to say around your kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So I'm curious how, talking about white supremacy specifically, how poverty intersects <gasps> with white supremacy. Oh, boy. Um, I, I will say that, to be clear, it's hard for me to also say this openly, but um, it was, it's my, my biological father um, that is mm-hmm. a white supremacist. I don't see him anymore. I'm not associated with him in any way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think when it comes to poverty and this was really, uh, frustrating as I got older and, and had to relearn a lot of stuff, but I, he had all kinds of ways to blame other groups and other races for mm-hmm. any kind of economic problems. And it was like, we would just be driving past and see a person of color, and depending on, you know, which racial group they were, he had a different rant, you know, for which group that was and a reason why, you know, they might have been somehow responsible, somehow for... responsible. Yeah, that they were taking from the government or mm-hmm. taking advantage of the system or uh, with immigrants and stuff like that and mm-hmm. taking the jobs and like that kind of thing. There was a lot of blame i feel like even just growing up he was such an angry person and there were so many rants that he had and everything was blamed usually on uh, various racial groups Mm -hmm. but never on himself that i heard or anything like of course there was no taking responsibility for anything but it was a lot of rants and a lot of it was about poverty and that it was um because of certain people of color. That was why that there were economic issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah. I can, I, can, I can kind of see a little more of the picture. Yeah, we would just drive by and we'd see somebody and it would turn into, I swear he had like the same rant and then you'd see a different racial group and then it would be, okay, this rant is coming. It just like got skinned as like a different type of rant almost. It yeah. It's like the same anger, the same, same entitlement. Anger. The same lack of accountability, really. Yeah. And I want to be really mindful not to say that poor folks should be accountable for being poor because I don't think that's true. No, no. But uh, yeah. blame, blaming, especially on racial groups is not... Yeah, yeah, is not being accountable. Is not being accountable at yeah. all. And, and not even... Yeah. I mean, I don't and, think we need to say much more than that. But yeah. And yeah, and even, I mean, I was raised by my single mom and she tried her best to um, teach us not to follow with our, our my dad's habits. Mm-hmm. And we were incredibly poor because she had to, you know, work two jobs and she was going to school. She didn't have a lot of support. And obviously that was not due to anything she did. It's just that was our situation. We didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of support, and um, poverty goes back a few generations in my family, at least. So, yeah, I don't think that's uncommon. Yeah, like people who are poor tend to stay poor. Yeah, yeah. Eh, we have a fucked system. Oh, it's so messed up. It is. It's virtually impossible for someone yeah. of low income status to move up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they. I mean, how do you get? How do you get the coaching to know what to pursue? I mean, it's, it's such a, it seems like such a secondary point Mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't think about when they talk about mobility in class. But if you don't have someone to tell you there's another way to do things and you don't have someone who's not going to shame you for that, like not only are there so many 
insurmountable like emotional and social obstacles but also there's just like what the fuck do i do yeah so i can definitely respect how hard that would be but yeah thank you for for mentioning and clarifying that Mm -hmm. when my dad is placing blame it's not that there was really anything about being poor about being poor that he could have done differently but sure in fact i've been criticized for using the word poor in Mm. that it's it's so attached to blame of saying people are lazy or people right yeah um and i was like i don't really know how to talk about people that are like essentially like financially fucked over because they're born into it yeah it's a really interesting conversation topic and even though when i was really young like up until probably 12 10 12 years old Mm -hmm. we couldn't keep three figures in the bank account like my mom would shout at us for like if we if we opened the fridge to look for food Mm. um, which looking back i think was an anxiety reaction probably yeah but it was like her fear that we didn't have enough money for electricity yeah so just just the light in the fridge and losing cold Mm, from the fridge was upsetting to her Mm -hmm. and then she would transfer that to us be really, really clear that, like, we shouldn't be opening the fridge to look for food. We shouldn't, wow. you know, like, we should only open the fridge if we know what we want in mm-hmm. the fridge. And sometimes, I mean, we, we typically always had food. So I wasn't, like, really, really poor because I had friends that did not always have food growing up. And, yeah, it's yeah. <clears throat> it's really hard. Around about 10, 12, my father retrained and went from working as a mover at Salmon's Moving and Storage, which is ironically not a company my family owns, but a company my family founded like a few generations ago. Um, but he went from that to doing um, being a flight service specialist, which is like, like I think when he made it to supervisor, he was making fifty five thousand a year, which was a lot. Like it was more than my family had ever made. But he didn't yeah. he didn't get there until I was like seventeen. Mm-hmm. But even when he started, even like thirty forty grand a year was like a fortune for us. Like it was yeah. so much more than we'd ever had, and like we were it was yeah what a change. But like the difference in mindset lagged behind. It was like even when my family was able to sort of transition from being like okay, let's just try and make sure we can pay this $80,000 mortgage. Mm. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Right. Um, and, uh, and also make sure that we can keep the kids fed. Like those were like the two objectives, yeah. like pay the mortgage, keep the kid fed, the kids fed. And that transition into, oh, there's so much less pressure now. Mm-hmm. Like now there isn't like this fear, this constant looming anxiety and stress and exhaustion from money. Yeah. But all of the learned habits were still there. So it was mm-hmm. like, even for me as a kid that didn't really have a lot of that stress, I took on a lot of my parents' stress. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it was it was really interesting that I like, I maintained a lot of those like, oh, well, we can't spend money on this and we can't spend money on that. And like, I really have to make sure I always have like a little bit of money in the bank account. And, like there's this constant mindset of like trying to squirrel stuff away and just like always feeling a little bit anxious about making purchases, especially any kind of big purchases and like. It's a lot of insecurity and instability, and I think it really affected my mental wellness. And I can definitely, I'm seeing some nods. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, There's a lot that I've seen kind of come out in terms of long-term effects of growing up um, in poverty or low income. And I I can completely agree. I certainly have habits, uh, good and bad, (laughs) right? (laughs) That I, and I've read articles and been like, oh, you know what, that actually makes sense that Mm -hmm. um there often people that 
grow up with not a lot of money are actually tend to be really poor at spending their money as they get older because when they have it they think oh it's not going to be it's going to be a long time before i have this again i have mm -hmm. to get all the things i need i have to spend it yeah and of course and that's i would say one of the reasons that is probably continues to last amongst many other issues but yeah there it's permanent like long-term i don't say permanent but long-term issues that occur um from our backgrounds um, I know with my, my co-parent, he grew up with a, his family's fairly comfortable. And I, you know, grew up where a lot of our food came from food banks. Right. And the way we've treated money has been really different. And we've had to try to identify our habits. And our therapist was like, you know what? Let's look at how you grew up with money and how different our views of money were as kids, right? So yeah. that kind of thing really does last long term for sure. Yeah, and I can see how how poverty also plays into mental wellness. Yes, absolutely. And how mental wellness could play into accountability. Yeah. Because that's something I definitely noticed in um, my parents was, um, like, my mom struggled a little more with, um, I, I mean, in my personal opinion from the outside looking in, because mm -hmm. I obviously can't speak for her, she definitely seemed to struggle more with mental wellness. She mm -hmm. seemed to struggle more with reality tracking um, and would openly gaslight people. Wow. And yeah. It, it got to the point where literally she'd be denying she had a conversation she had like less than 12 hours ago. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even like a long term. I've forgotten about this, so it couldn't have happened. It was like, how do we both not know that this conversation just happened like six hours ago or even two hours ago in some cases? Mm hmm. It was like, you can't deny you said the thing that we both remember you just said. And yeah. she was like, yes, I can. <laughs> wow. It made for a pretty fucked, um, a pretty fucked sense of what was real and secure for me mm -hmm. as a kid growing up. So I think that affected my like deep seated needs for security, which is why, especially if you think about early Victor from like five, six years ago, like how much more I needed security and how much more I needed to be like either right or needed things to be one way. Like I needed everyone to sort of agree that this was the way oh, things were. Interesting. Like a lot of it comes from that. Like there were dissenting voices about like whether or not things existed or happened. Like that right, kind of right. insecurity about reality. Well, I can say as someone who's been your friend for how long? I don't know. Probably six years. Probably six, about seven. six years. Um, that I've noticed you become a lot more confident Thank you. And your confidence has really grown and it suits you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. My projection of confidence has never been a problem for me, but actually feeling any yes. sense of security has but been. You can, there's a distinguished difference yeah. um, if you pay attention. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like people didn't know that I was insecure. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was just like arrogant sometimes. Hmm. Yeah, at least that's how I would have characterized myself. Maybe maybe not as much seven years ago, because I would have been, what, 24 then? 25, holy crap. Yeah, I've been in the scene a really long time. <laughs> like, what? So long. It's so long. <laughs> I mean, I know there are people that have been in the scene for, like, 30, 40 years, yeah. but I mean, like, it's funny how sometimes we still characterize our mindset as, like, <laughs> as being, like, uh, 
yeah, like being fairly new to the scene or being fairly moderate mm-hmm. or like not sorry, novice, intermediate, I yeah. guess is what I mean. And saying. then after a while, you're kind of like, wait, I'm not really new anymore, am I? I guess yeah. I should stop saying that. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, it's been like five or six years. Maybe I'm not as new anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So the link I wanted to draw was between like accountability yes. and like white supremacy yeah. and how easy it is with poverty and and mm-hmm. possibly education level. Um, yeah. To for especially for people who like just haven't been exposed to a lot of really um, inclusive ideas at mm-hmm. schools, mm-hmm. Um, especially for people homeschooled, which is not uncommon in a lot of like Bible yeah. Belty yeah. kind of areas. Yeah. Do you know if your dad was homeschooled? Uh, no. From my to my knowledge, he went to public school. Okay. Cool. No, again, not trying to like build a whole bunch of excuses. I'm no, trying no. to make this comprehensible. Yeah. Because um, I think for some folks, it really is incomprehensible that there could be this much hate and this much, like, unbridled, um, violent anger yeah. and resentment. It's, yeah, it's a it's a tough one because, and I've puzzled over um, how strong my, uh, my father's racism was and, mm-hmm. like, where did that come from? Because I know that my family has you know, not to minimize it, but, mm-hmm. um, certainly not as much of like white supremacists. They were more of subtle races. I don't know if there's like a word for that, but yeah, they would make comments here and there. And then my father was just like so strong in it. And I don't, I, I kind of wondered where that came from. Like why he was so staunchly white supremacist, yeah. but the rest of your family was like, quote unquote, background racist. Like, yeah. Just like the normal racist society level. <laughs> right. At, at the time, anyway. Yeah, yeah I think, at the time. they Stronger than today, yeah, uh, you would find. It seems but... at least today that it's less publicly and socially acceptable. Yeah. I don't know that it's less racist, but it's less like publicly acceptable to be racist like that so yeah. i think a lot of those racist beliefs are just becoming um quieter yeah 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 my my family was definitely the kind of racist where you know you had like your old uncle or grandpa you're like wait you can't say that um not to say that that's not damaging but like i don't know where my father came from like he's just had such an anger Mm-hmm. about him he was always that's a lot of the time that i was around him he was always just so angry mm-hmm. uh and i i don't i never necessarily knew where that came from if it was just something that got planted in him from the more um just from other men in his life just possibly. from other men in his life or i'm not sure if he because i know he got involved with uh, so certain gang activity. I don't know if like it was like the people he was with that really kind of embrace it, but sure. Um, I'm sure obviously some of his upbringing had to do with it, but it was kind of like I have aunts and uncles that aren't like that are his siblings that, that aren't are white supremacists. So I'm just like where I don't know where his behavior hmm. necessarily came from. Mm-hmm. I mean, thinking back to when I was in high school, I had friends like intelligent friends mm-hmm. that went on to go to university and do degrees and like like academically successful capable of critical thought who went to white supremacist meetings and i was like so shocked when i heard that one of my acquaintances had gone Mm -hmm. and even more shocked when i heard one of my like friends who i really liked like one of my better friends at school and i didn't have very many friends so this was like probably like one of three, one of three or four people I really like, liked mm-hmm. and trusted in, in high school. And I, I asked them, I was like, I 
don't understand how you could go to this meeting. Like, you know, I'm not white, right? Like, how could you, how could you go to this meeting? Like, it mm-hmm. feels to me like almost like a personal betrayal. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And he said, Victor, it's not about the hate of the black man. It's about the love of the white man. Oh, what? And it's like that softcore nonsense <sighs> that is the slippery slope that I think people get started down. They think they're just celebrating their heritage and very quickly it turns into this hate propaganda. Yeah. That sounds like quite a bit of denial, in my opinion. Absolutely. It's it's definitely about yeah. the hate of people. Yeah, of course it is. It certainly is in practice, even if it's not in theory. And I think it certainly is in theory. Yeah. Yeah. Woof. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah I, as a, a small child, I remember um, my dad had this, like, really big collection of um, Holocaust. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we're getting right into it. That's uh, intense. Yeah, a lot of Holocaust kind of newspaper clippings and even like paraphernalia. And I didn't know what it was as a small child. I recognized the swastika because he mm-hmm. had some things like on his wall. and I, I, But I didn't even know what it was until learning about it later and kind of being like, oh, what? Yeah. Um, and he had certain uh, rants along about the Holocaust and... Uh, and then later it became, um, KKK paraphernalia and to the point where, and he, it's, I know this was said a lot in the States when it came to like white supremacist groups, especially with things like Confederate statues and people say, well, it's about the history. (laughs) I'm not. yeah. Yeah. I hear you. And I remember I hadn't, I feel like there needs to be some context to this. I, my dad had rights to see me. Um, as a child and because my mom had claimed some of the uh, abuse, but there wasn't really anything to prove it. Um, the court had said, which I think is rare nowadays, uh, for the, or sorry, it's, it would, it was rare then it's more common nowadays. The court had said that, um, my dad had rights to see my sister and I, but only as long as we wanted to see him, that if at any point we didn't want to see him, we were, we didn't have to, Interesting. which yeah, was pretty rare then, but I think it was due to my mom's. Uh, claims of, of of abuse. Anyway, so I continued to see him until I was about nine mm-hmm. years old. And that was when I said I didn't want to see him anymore. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I visited, he lives in another city in another province. Uh, whenever I visited the family over there, he, I didn't want to go to his house and I didn't want to spend the night. So I would go for lunch with him or something. Mm-hmm. And then that was it. And then that continued to be the case until um, I had my first baby. Mm-hmm. And he kind of gave me this kind of plea of, I want to be a grandfather. I want to, maybe we can fix things again. And, uh, we went out for lunch and of course I had a baby that was not really enjoying being in a restaurant. So he said, why don't you come over to my house? Like, it'll be fine. And I hadn't been there in years. And I said, you know what? He convinced me to go to his house Mm -hmm. and it was paraphernalia, like all, wow, all over the walls. I'm talking like hoods and masks that were framed and wow yeah posters and like legal documents and stuff and i was like what the actual fuck is this like what is this and he pulled the like what i'm just so fascinated with the history (sighs) i'm like you have these framed on your living room wall that's glorification that's not at best at best yeah (laughs) it's glorification it's not this isn't a fascination with history. Yeah. This is like an obsession and this is glorification for sure. Yeah. And then it kind of brought back the memories of him having Holocaust paraphernalia when I was a little kid and, and yeah. being like, come on, 
but I mean, that was his claim and, and I, I left and then I, I haven't seen him since, but, uh, yeah, yeah, that whole, this, we're just proud of our history or like, it's really important. And I'm like, then I don't know, maybe donate it to a museum. Yeah for awareness can, on this so can we can frame it in context like this is right? a horrible thing that you should not participate in yeah 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 i'm all for people celebrating whatever white cultural heritage they want provided that heritage is not based on genocide and hate how like that seems like a really <laughs> basic a very reasonable ask. totally reasonable thing to ask for yeah i don't get like the the confederate statues and oh you know you got to knowledge your history so how about instead of a confederate statue you have some kind of memorial for People, slaves sure. and their descendants yeah yeah there are a lot of ways to Ugh. document history in a way that doesn't frame a person who would be seen re- as reprehensible by today's lens yeah as being a hero of something yeah yeah it is about history in a lot of ways like it is about reframing and rethinking history and i think that's why people are resisting it so much is these historical monuments and these historical moments are so essential to this identity of being the hero of every story Mm -hmm, even when mm -hmm. that story is massacring innocent civilians or people like christopher columbus day yeah (laughs) yeah exactly yeah Uh, history I don't think history should be held on to in that way. I think history should be like, like my own personal history. I try to think of my mistakes as like an opportunity to learn something. Yeah. I know I'm going to fuck up. I still do. And yeah, white people have got a pretty big past of messing up like hugely. Yeah. So I don't know. Instead of holding on to that, why don't we say, okay, what do we learn from this? That's what I would think history should be about. Be about is about, okay. There was this war. What led to that? And how do we try to stop that from happening again? How can we right. improve ourselves? But maybe it's, is it a human trait or a white person trait or something that we just don't it's, want to acknowledge that we have faults? It's definitely a human so... trait, in my opinion. <laughs> like, I, don't yeah. think, I don't think white people get a monopoly on, on sucking as... <laughs> as I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's a competition, yeah. um, uh, I, can't, I can't claim that there may not I... be a medal in it somewhere, but if shake it's... Shake um, my people. Shake my head at white people, even though I am white people. Yeah, I, I understand. And I'm half white people in a sense, not yeah. that I like using the term half, because I've always, I've always kind of had a hate on for being like half British and half Indian. Like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm part both of those things, mm. but there's so much stigma around being like half of this or not quite that, that it's just like... I'm just a third kind of thing. Like, it's, yeah, well, you're not like different. half a person. Yeah. It, it's not like know. my arm is Indian and <laughs> like my eyes are British or something, you know? Yeah. It's like even genetically, like I carry a whole set of chromosomes from each, each past. Yeah. Theoretically, I can make two whole homozygous humans potentially. Yeah. But anyways, what are we talking about? Right. Pasts and crappiness. And just, yeah, yes. people not willing to acknowledge... When There's, they messed up or that they did something that wasn't okay. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what that is. Somebody. It's, it's interesting when we have conversations it. about racism, like capital R racism, like institutionalized oppressions of mm, people mm-hmm. being essentially only a white person thing. And the funny thing about that concept is I think it's unique to Canada and the United States in a sense, or at the very mm. least, I'm saying that because I'm from Canada. <clears throat> but, but at the very least, I think when people make that academic claim, they're talking about countries where white folks are in power or in mm. relationships with white folks. 
if you're talking about relationships between POCs, like say, for example, um, this, I only lived in India for six months, so I have to qualify this as someone who grew up Canadian mm-hmm. and then moved to India for six months and, and volunteered and basically lived in, in Chennai. I didn't really go outside of the city much, which I still see as a bit of a lost opportunity, but it was neat to kind of live in a city and just kind of get get a feel of what six months of that experience feels like. Yeah. And one thing I noticed, especially in my mom, but even a little bit in some of the people I interacted with was like how apparent bigotry based on caste was and how apparent the movement against that had become, um, but also how apparent um, racism was and like intense racism against other cultural groups, like especially um, indigenous folks in India like hmm. um my grandfather was dravidian which is like one of the indigenous people from like the south of india yeah so as soon as you start looking at like all of these other dynamics of like oh but what does a relationship look like between someone who's indian and some like someone who's p- from the indo-aryan synthesis from like the north of india mm-hmm. um and someone and and it should be said white supremacy is very alive and well in india and that there is a large like extremist nazi they read my Kampf um, group. I shouldn't say large because we're talking about a huge population yeah. base and it is a small population in that huge population right. base. But it's it's loud. Mm. It's it's loud enough that like Mein Kampf sales are are notable. I'd have to Google wow. it, but I believe like they might be in the upper sales range of mm-hmm. the world in in India. So it's relevant on this topic. Yeah. So when we when we think about that, like when we think about white supremacy, we often don't think about these other cultural contexts. But mm-hmm. the point I wanted to get across was that it, it doesn't take a white person to be racist. A white person doesn't have to be in the room for there to be racism. But what's what I think a lot of white folks miss about the conversation about racism that's not white is the direction is the same. The racism is still mm. about other people of color. Well, and that makes me wonder between, like the difference between discrimination mm-hmm. versus racism because yeah. racism is, is a little bit more about an oppressed like oppressing yeah a, a certain group which yeah i mean historically white people have been pretty bad like with colonization and yes. but I, that is a really interesting point i didn't know that yeah and, and i mean i wouldn't expect you to right because it's such a like unique yeah niche thing that i yeah. would know because i spent some time there um, and for clarity, I didn't have any run-ins with, with Nazi um, folks in India, um, which was good. Yeah. Um, in fact, if anything, the, the weirdest thing about it is the, the perception of what is white changes from place to place in the world. Huh. So like in India, I would, I would almost be considered white. If I really? met, like, I think, I think if I was talking, if I were talking to certain groups of people, they would perceive me as a hundred percent white. Um, And it's from what I've heard from people that have traveled to South America, it's like there are various regions where there is a range of skin tones Mm -hmm. and like the arbitrary cutoff where someone is considered not racialized is different in different regions. So what's considered white here is not the same as what would be considered white in India. That makes makes some sense. Mm -hmm. Makes me think of uh, Trevor Noah. Yeah. He discusses a lot growing up in South Africa and being mixed race. Mixed race. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that he, he kind of mentioned in one of his comedy shows he was excited to come here because he thought because he was so used to being, being white yeah so being white <laughs> that he was like i'm gonna come here and like i'm gonna be black and he like studied black culture and he right, was like right. this is my chance and then people were like as, as he got off the airport someone mistake mistook him for being mexican <laughs> and he was like he was like damn it yeah that's that's such a mixed race problem is the ambiguous race issue yeah. where everyone just assumes you're you know quote unquote 100 percent quote unquote full like whatever you want to call right, it right right you're just like like i've been mistaken for persian right i've been mistaken for greek i've been mistaken for you know um iranian for sure um italian for sure like i get a lot of these like single origin guesses at where i'm from and it's like i'm just mixed race I'm like part. That's such I'm a part, strange. It's it's easiest to explain to people as being like my mom was Indian and my dad was English. But when you start looking at like my Dravidian ancestry, right. it gets really complicated. Yeah, because we were from like the when you think about it, some of the poorest, most religious regions are in the south. Mm-hmm. If not, the entire south is the poorest, most religious yeah. region. If you want to generalize, um, and that's where my family's yeah. from. That's. It seems. There is no Brahmin so, here. Yeah, like I feel like I don't even have words because I don't know what that's like. I've never had anybody question right, where or ask from. me where my uh, heritage is from because yeah. I'm pretty white. And I get asked that like, I wouldn't say all the time anymore because yeah. I'm really well known in the circles I travel in now. Yeah. And to be honest, if people I know really well ask me, it doesn't bug me. Mm-hmm. It's And ironically, those are the people that are the most careful about asking um, but I'll run into strangers, um, especially like new folks at MBK sometimes. Mm. Um, and it'll, they'll just like right out of the gate. That's like one of the <laughs> first questions, like, what are you? And it's like human. <laughs> um, yeah. or, you, you know, when people ask me where I'm from saying like, yeah, I'm, I'm from here. And they're like, oh, where were you born? And you're like, Oy. oh, this, this line of questioning. And it's that's... like, I was born in Richmond and it's like, okay, well, where were your, where were your, where are your parents from? That's so awkward. Yeah. And it's like, they're trying to dig for this really intimate information about, you know, origins and like ethnic stuff. And it's, it's hard not to feel like the reason that they're orienting themselves in a social situation with me based on my, my racial and ethnic information is because that's how they're evaluating me as a person. And that's how they're landmarking how to react to me and like talk to me and behave with me. Like they're trying to place you in in a, in a category, in a box or, and this isn't, appropriate either maybe Mm -hmm. they're just trying to make small talk and so they point out something that's really you know (laughs) this is what makes you different right oh here's something different something to talk about and it's like what um i think you're probably right like to some extent it is both of those things which both are inappropriate Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, (laughs) that's ridiculous no i actually remember the first time i had you over for dinner years ago yeah and uh, that was when we were living in north delta and i i remember you bringing up your background Mm -hmm. and i had wondered at the time if you were like trying to get over like get that conversation over with before we had a chance to ask that's possible i don't remember i don't remember that specific to my memory i just i do remember thinking at the time like oh okay here we go like he just wants to have this conversation yeah victor's going into his background and i mean it was interesting but i remember thinking like um it was one of the kind of first bits of conversation once we'd gotten kind of into our dinner yeah. That you just kind of like brought it up. And it made me wonder if pe- that was something people asked you. Oh, definitely. A lot. And I, that I, you were kind of like, well, I'm just going to, maybe that was a way of like having. Like being defensive almost about it and saying like, if I have this conversation now on my own terms, I don't yes. have to worry about them bringing it up on their terms. Yeah. Quite possibly. That's really perceptive. 
Um, I hadn't given it much thought, but now that I'm thinking about it, you're probably right. Mm -hmm. And I, because I remember thinking in my head, like, oh, I hope he didn't think we were going to ask or like, because I it's inappropriate to ask so i was like oh i hope he didn't like just I mean, say that because he thought we were going to it 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 is it is inappropriate if you don't know someone well especially mm-hmm. um, but it's it's like a lot of other intimate conversations it's kind of like if a person brings it up it's usually it's usually okay like the way that i look at it is i would always be mindful of asking follow-up questions mm. but i think if there's ever a time hmm, i don't know actually it would really depend on the person in the situation because I can think of POCs that I know that would be really upset if people asked follow-up questions. Right. Yeah. Um, and that also makes me wonder if it's kind of similar. Maybe it's really not. Please correct me. If it's kind of similar yeah. to if someone's gender mm-hmm. expression or identity isn't really clear to you. Mm-hmm. Asking. You, you don't ask. But it is it is still considered okay when you get someone's name to share your own pronouns and ask for theirs. Right, right. But, you know, people asking questions like, but what's in your pants? Or like, oh, but how, what were you born as? Right? Like, oh, really? Geez. But people do it all the time. Right. And... And it's super not okay. It's so not okay. It's like, yeah. well, if... Especially Oof. if you don't know them very well. So, yeah. you know, if they want to bring it up, they will. Yeah, I Otherwise, mean, even like, if you do know them really well, it's like, you yeah. better you better know them pretty well I, if you're asking about what's in their pants. Like, that's a pretty... A total side story. I was dating um, a trans woman. She was assigned male at birth, and sure. she was, like, kind of in the beginning of her uh, transition, transition in terms of ex- expression and gender mm-hmm. expression. Mm-hmm. She was... And we dated kind of through quite a bit of her transition. And I remember at one point, we were, like, driving, and she asked me, you haven't asked me if I plan to have bottom surgery. And I was like, that, I'm not going to ask that. That's super inappropriate. That's your body and your business. And she was like, well, you're pretty well acquainted with my genitals. I feel like if anyone could ask, you would be the person, that would you'd be. be the person. But even still, I was like, oh, I'm not asking. It's your body. If you want to talk about it, you can. But can she, she up, kind yeah. of had made a laugh about it that like, I think you're allowed. I think that's kind of rad. But <laughs> and, I, and I think it depends person to person. And I think yeah. it's really respectful for you to wait and let her bring it up if she wants to. Yeah, was, even if we are dating, even if I am well acquainted with her genitals, like that's yeah. still not my body. That's still not my business. Yeah. And whenever she wants to bring it up, she can. It is super awesome but modeling of <laughs> respecting people's she autonomy. Was like, and she decisions. still makes fun of me for it. So <laughs> I'm like, that's okay. I actually think it's really sweet. Like I, I like hearing stories like that when people talk about caring about people regardless of what their genitals are. It's mm-hmm. like, t- to me, that doesn't seem like that needs to be what's important. It's not. And yet for so many people, it seems like it is what's important. And it like makes me sad sometimes. But of course, in a very like at a distance kind of way, because Mm -hmm. I don't deal with that as a regular day to day thing. The way that like a lot of trans folks and NBs probably do. Mm -hmm. Like the limit and extent of my non-binariness is like wearing makeup and and occasionally having queer sex. Mm -hmm. So it's like that's that's something that's important to me. Like that piece of my identity is important to me. But if I think about being like gender non-conforming i'm pretty far towards the mask end of the spectrum and there's mm-hmm. still a lot of mask passing that happens and there's still a lot of privilege associated with being mask presenting even if i am gender non-binary mm-hmm. yeah and that doesn't make you any less non-binary that's true it doesn't make me it's i catch myself doing that all the time yeah. where i like <laughs> consistently like, I invalidate like where I am because I don't feel a need to take up that space. Mm -hmm. It's like when I'm around like cis, cis folks that are like a hundred percent cis and are very binary, 
I'm really comfortable taking up that space because even though I may feel like I only have like a foothold in that world or Mm -hmm. that I'm only quote unquote only um, however much percent into into being more femme expressing Um, and it comes out in different ways for me. It's not always just like lipstick, eyeshadow, nail polish, things like that. And interestingly, they're not things I fetishize. Mm -hmm. It's not like I necessarily look at them on myself Oh, no, I do think I'm kind of better attracted <laughs> with them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's it's still honestly a bit of a clusterfuck, and I feel really self-conscious talking about it. I don't know why that is, but I like feel, especially talking publicly about it, I think my, right. my fear around that <clears throat> is just being like scrutinized by other people mm-hmm. and, and being invalidated. I think I've been so invalidated um, from cis folks telling me that like, oh yeah, but that can be masculine or like, oh yeah, but you know, you wearing lipstick is masculine. It's just like gay. And it's like, uh, they're not the same thing. And like, yeah, I have done queer stuff with men and that's cool. And it has nothing to do with me wearing lipstick. Yeah. They're really different things. Totally different. Yeah. That's why you give them the picture of the gingerbread person. Yes. The gender, the gingerbread person or the unicorn, the gender unicorn. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Both good. Oh, good conversations. Yes. I feel like we need to have a break from that's what we're kind of doing is having really difficult conversations and then maybe going on a bit of a tangent, a bit of a tangent to have a bit of a break from that topic. Yeah. I tried introducing that idea early in the episode just so that like folks would know when I went on a random tangent, it wasn't just because I was off topic. It was also just because like we both were like, I need to fan my face and like take a few minutes. Yeah. Are you comfortable talking a little more about it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm doing good actually. Okay, awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, thanks. You are important to me. Okay. Oh. And in this case, more important than the conversation. Like if the episode quality isn't where I want it to be, that's less important to me than making sure you're okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. I'm happy you exist and that I know you. <laughs> I'm happy you exist and that I know you too. Yay. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, Considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sikwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.